want to invite you to turn to the book of Romans. <clears throat> book of Romans chapter 5. For the most part, these first five chapters of Paul's letter to the Romans has to do with how we can be made right with God. These first five chapters are where Paul unpacks the doctrine that we know as justification. We've, we've said it, we've defined it numerous times. It just bears repeating over and over and over again because that's what Paul does is repeats it over and over again. Justification is an instantaneous act. It's an instantaneous act of God in which he declares us to be righteous. Say it again. Justification is an instantaneous act of God in which he declares us to be righteous. In other words, the moment, that moment that we put our faith in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins and the fulfillment of every promise that God has made, including the promise of eternal life, God declared us to be holy, blameless, above reproach before him. And so if you have entrusted yourself to Jesus, banked your hope on Jesus, then that is your position before God at this very moment. God sees you in Christ as righteous, holy, perfect. And loved ones, that... That reality is better than winning the lottery. It is a reality that Paul introduced in Romans chapter 2, really picks up some steam in chapter 4, and, and now in chapter 5, he's just drilling down deeper and deeper as we have seen. Romans chapter 5, verse 1, Paul writes, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And then we get to verses 12 through 21. Here Paul is just unpacking the significance of Jesus' flawless obedience to God for the sake of our being counted righteous by God. So I'll be honest with you. I, I, I've, I read chapter 5, verses 12 to 21, and I just find my brain kind of slipping tears. This text, for me, falls into the category that's kind of hard to understand. And um, I'm not alone. Maybe you're that way too. One commentator writes, to my great encouragement of this passage, Paul is unpacking the glories of the gospel here, the beauty of justification, but he's doing it at a level that pushes us to what can feel like the limits of our ability to understand. That would be me. I have to ponder this and ponder this and ponder this. <sighs> Come on, get this. But let me encourage you. I think it's true that we are actually walking over familiar gospel territory. God's purpose here is to take us deeper and deeper and deeper into our understanding of and our appreciation for the gospel. So Paul's line of thinking is difficult, 
But that's because God wants us to press deeper and deeper and deeper into the glories of the gospel. Our, our family, our, my family, has uh, lake property in northern Minnesota. I love going up there. I try to get there a couple times every summer. Now, from making trips there since I was in grade school, I know that lake really, really well. And still, every time we're out on the water, we're trolling that same shoreline for the hundred-somethingth time, I see something I've never seen before. I feel a depth of pleasure that literally grows sweeter every year the older I get. Maybe it's just getting older. Maybe it's just seeing things I never saw. But I want to invite you to follow along as I read Paul's summary of the doctrine of justification and, and his challenging line of thought here in verses 18 to 21. And I want to ask you to pray that even though we've been around this gospel shoreline before, God, the Holy Spirit, would give us eyes to behold glories that we've not perceived before and feel appreciation and affection we've not felt before. So, with regard to God's word, um, I want to invite you to stand, follow along as I read Romans 5, verses 18 through 21. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. It's the most precious truth in the world. Let's pray. There is no love that's higher or wider or deeper or truer than the love, O oh God, our Father, that you have shown, displayed in and through the life, the perfect life, and the sin-atoning death, and the miraculous resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. There is no love like it. And um, there is no way to know it and experience except through this supernatural working of the Holy Spirit. And so we ask that you would work among us. We ask that you would come upon us, Holy Spirit. We ask that you would open the eyes of our hearts to behold glories, glories. Let us see them. Let us know them. Let us be affected by them. May it translate into a whole 
different kind of life and sociology and reality of relationships. We pray that you would get glory, O oh God, through your word now, in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. My purpose in um, this sermon is to answer one main question, and that question is this. How is it that one man can make many righteous? How can one man make many righteous? What could one man do that may satisfy the infinite holy justice of God? What significance does one man's sinless life have in relation to the countless sins committed by millions upon millions upon millions of people in the past are being committed today by millions and millions including many in this room at this very moment in the present and will be committed by millions upon millions upon millions of people yet in the future. Or to say it another way, what do Jesus, 33 years of perfect obedience on this earth, have to do with us? How can one man make many righteous? And in order to answer this question and to understand, I think, the significance of Jesus' perfect life, I want to pull back the lens, draw your attention to... Get ready now. I want to draw your attention to three imputations. Now, the word imputation is not necessarily a word we use every day. That is, unless you... It's your practice to read the King James Version of the Bible. And that's not a bad thing. It's just that that's, that's probably where you would come across imputation. <laughs> imputation is, however, it's a biblical concept. An important one, as I hope you will see. So listen, to, to impute, to impute is to think of something as belonging to someone in such a way so as to actually cause it to belong to them. I'll say that again. <laughs> to impute is to think of something as belonging to someone in such a way so as to actually cause it to belong to them. Now, it's really not that foreign of a thought. Last month, Less, less than a month ago still, our youngest son got married, and now we have a new daughter-in-law. And we don't simply treat our new daughter-in-law like she was a family member. We actually regard her as a family member. We consider Ara a Dernberger. Aramelli has been imputed by virtue of marriage union with Dernbergerliness. Now, in the case of the three imputations that we're going to consider here, God is the one doing the imputing. <laughs> Might say God is the imputer. 
And the first imputation is this. The imputation of Adam's sin to us. To look again at what Paul says in our text in the first half of Romans chapter 5 verse 18. Where he says, one trespass led to condemnation for all men. That's, that's bad news. Very bad news. But there is even more badder news in the first half of verse 19. By the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. Now we know from verse 14 that that one man was Adam and that that one trespass was Adam's trespass. This is simply the the summary of the point Paul has been driving home since verse 12. And we'll look back there, Romans 5.12. Paul says, Sin came into the world through one man and death through sin and so death spread to all men. Verse 15. Many died through one man's trespass. Verse 16, the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation. Verse 17, because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man. You you listen to that carefully. That is overwhelming stuff. I mean, what could be, what could possibly be darker or heavier news. And Paul wants us to feel it, obviously. The full weight of how serious it is. And so, verses 12 to 19, he just pounds it home. That is is six repetitions of the same truth. Boom! Boom! Adam sinned. Boom! He chose another pleasure. The pleasure of the forbidden fruit over the pleasure of God's Glorious wisdom, the security of God's care, the sweetness of God's communion and nearness. And in doing so, Adam scorned the infinitely valuable glory of God. And the result? Sin in the world, brokenness in the world, sickness in the world, madness in the world. The reign of death in the world. Judgment in the world. Condemnation in the world. Or to make it more personal, the result of Adam's sin, and and, and listen, the result of Adam's sin is sin in you and sin in me and brokenness in us and the reign of death over us and judgment upon us, and righteous condemnation for us all. By one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. Now, Adam is the one sinning here, but Paul wants us to understand the damage done by Adam's sin. It affects every one of us. It affects every human being. It affects every human being in every place, at all times. And so God deals with every person that descends from Adam, which is everybody, as a whole. And therefore, by Adam's one sin, 
the entire human race inherited a sinful nature resulting in death and judgment and condemnation for all. Which raises an important question, doesn't it? How how can one sin of one man make everyone sinful? How can one sin of one man make everybody sinners? The answer is back in verse 12. Paul writes, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. Now, here's, this is where Paul's line of thinking gets... It requires, it requires thought. It, re, it requires us actually to interpret that last phrase. Death spread to all men because all sinned in Adam. And that idea that all men sinned in Adam means that God thought of us all as having sinned when Adam sinned. It's the reality of imputation. Adam's sin is imputed to us and our universal experience now of human death and condemnation, it is God's judgment on all of us because we all were in some deep and mysterious way united to Adam in his sinning. So, listen carefully. I think this is important. The main problem with you and me is it's not that we sin as individuals. Those sins are real. And that, that is a real serious problem. But it, it, we could also say those sins are enough to condemn us. But you see, there's a deeper problem still. Our deeper problem is our connection to Adam. Our deeper problem is that we don't just do sins. You know, I I might do a sin, you might do a sin. No, the deeper problem is that we are all sinners now by nature in Adam. We don't just do bad things every now and then. We are bad people to the core. Sin entered into human life through Adam, and it corrupts the nature of every human being because his sin and its consequences are imputed to us. Our personal, individual sins, as serious as they may be, they only aggravate the more miserable condition before God that we have as corrupt sinners by nature and so objects of his just and righteous wrath. Now, I can... I can sort of anticipate because I, I, I think this way. <laughs> I can imagine the impulse of some might be to object to that imputation. That doesn't feel fair, does it? Why should I be thought of as committing Adam's sin? How is it fair that I inherit his sin nature and the consequences of his sinning? 
tap the brakes a little bit here and let's not be too quick to object because, and believe me, <laughs> when I say you are not going to want to object to the next two imputations. Here's how Jerry Bridges responds to this objection. See if it feels satisfying to you in any way. He writes, it was the creator's prerogative to establish this principle of representation, that is, imputation. It's not up to us to judge, rationalize, or modify God's chosen structure. In the exercise of his sovereign will, in which he is always holy, wise, just, and good, God determines the system, not we. This framework exists by the decree of God in the exercise of his ultimate sovereign dominion over all things, including the human race and sin itself. This very plan was in place before time began. Now, that that is just as true about the second imputation. That is, before time began, God planned and ordained for the imputation of our sin to Christ. That's the second imputation. The imputation of our sin to Christ. And, and loved ones, this, this one's right at the very heart and center of the gospel. In fact, we sing it. We're gonna, we are going to sing it, I think, at the end today in that simple little song that says, Holy God in love became the perfect man to bear my blame. On the cross, he took my sin and by his death, I live again. A few years ago, a um, dear friend of ours, Rick Gamash, who many of you know, wrote, um, he wrote a very creative narrative recounting. I, I think it really kind of captures this notion of the imputation of our sin to Christ. And so I, I want to read a portion of it. You listen to this and see if this does, how this lands on you, if it makes sense then of this, this second imputation, what Jesus endured, what he when he suffered and died on the cross in our place. Here's what it says. Then Jesus, on the cross now, is startled by a foul odor. It isn't the stench of open wounds. It's something else, and it crawls inside him. He looks up to his Father, and his father looks back. But Jesus doesn't recognize these eyes. They pierce the invisible world with fire and darken the visible sky. And Jesus feels dirty. He hangs between earth and heaven, filthy with human discharge on the outside and now filthy human wickedness on the inside. 
And the Father speaks. Son of man. Why have you sinned against me? And heaped scorn on my great glory. You are self-sufficient and self-righteous. Consumed with yourself and puffed up with selfish ambition. You rob me of my glory and worship what is inside of you instead of looking out to the one who created you. You are a greedy, lazy, gluttonous slanderer. You are a lying, conceited, ungrateful, cruel adulterer. You practice sexual immorality and fill your mind with vulgarity. You lust after what is forbidden. With all your heart, you love perverse pleasure. You hate your brother and murder him with bullets of anger fired from your own heart. You kill babies for convenience. You ignore the needy. You love money and prestige and honor. And you put on a cloak of outward piety. But inside you are filled with dead men's bones. You are lukewarm and easily enticed by the world. You covet and can't have, so you murder. You are filled with envy and rage and bitterness and unforgiveness. You mock your parents. You have no self-control. You are an unsubmissive wife. You are a lazy, disengaged husband. Your list of sins goes on and on and on and indignation for your sin consumes me. Now drink my cup. And Jesus does. He drinks for hours. He downs every drop of the scalding liquid of God's own hatred for our sin mingled with white-hot wrath against that sin. Omnipotent hatred for the sins of every generation, past, present, and future. Omnipotent wrath directed at one naked man hanging on a cross. The Father can no longer look at His beloved Son, His heart's treasure, the mirror image of himself. He averts his gaze. Jesus pushes himself upward and cries to heaven, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's the second imputation. In Romans 5, 9, Paul says, Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. Paul says it more explicitly in 2 Corinthians 5, 21, where he writes, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin 
so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. You see that? In, in the same way that Adam's sin was imputed to us, so God imputed our sins to Jesus. God thought of our sins as belonging to the perfect man, Jesus Christ. And here's the crazy thing, right? When, when God thought of our sins as belonging to Jesus, they actually did belong to Jesus. doesn't mean that God thought of Jesus as actually having committed those sins or that Jesus ever shared our sinful nature. That is not what we're saying. But the guilt of our sins was thought of by God as actually, legally, forensically, however you say it, belonging to Christ. And loved ones, Jesus voluntarily bore the guilt of those sins and so bore the penalty of those sins for those sins in our place. He bore the pain he bore the abandonment. He bore the full measure of God's wrath against our sins. And finally, he bore death. And the work that Christ completed there, it's completely done. It takes your breath away. Now, now this may come as a bit of a surprise even though that second imputation, the imputation of our sins to Christ, I mean, it is truly, it is at the heart of the gospel. Nevertheless, it is not the whole gospel. Listen. Hear me out. The substitutionary death of Jesus is not sufficient to save us and reconcile us to God. Before you cry heresy, hang on. The substitutionary death of Jesus is not sufficient to save us and reconcile us to God. Even though the fact that Christ suffered and died to save sinners is an unspeakably breathtaking, wonderful truth, it is not the whole truth. There is, as if there possibly could be, there is yet more wonderful truth. Here it is. The imputation of Christ's righteousness to us. Here's why there's, there needs to be more than just a substitutionary death in our place. If Jesus merely suffered the penalty for our sin, then all he did was earn our forgiveness for those sins. I hope that doesn't sound like I'm diminishing Jesus' work on the cross. 
Again, hear me out. As marvelous and as necessary as Jesus bearing our penalty and obtaining our forgiveness is, it only gets us to where Adam was before he sinned and sank the whole human race into sin and corruption and death. We just get back to zero. Think about it like this. Um, On account of Adam... We're all born by imputation. We're all born with this bank account that is just, it is just deep in the red. We are born with an overwhelming debt, debt larger than the national debt, if that's possible. <clears throat> in other words, we are, we're, we're born with a debt so massive that we could never pay it off if we paid for our whole life or even if we live forever and ever. <laughs> it's that serious. When Jesus died on the cross, he wiped out the debt. Jesus' death canceled the debt of sin so that our bank balance is no longer in the red. We have a zero balance in the account because our sin was imputed to Christ and his death bore all the debts for all that sin away forever. Now, of course, clearly, zero debt. You know, that's, that's awesome, right? Just ask Dave Ramsey. But zero balance in the account is still zero balance. We remain morally neutral to God when what He requires, God requires perfect obedience. But because of our corrupt sinful nature, we're incapable of perfect obedience. And so this third imputation is absolutely necessary to fill the account. And we can't fill it on our own because we don't want to. We can't. (laughs) We need God, the imputer, to complete this good news. Or maybe you've you've heard it said, maybe you've heard us said it, I don't know, uh, justification. Justification means just as if I had never sinned. You've heard that, right? And that's true. That's true. That's what the second imputation means. Just as if I'd never sinned. The implication of our sins imputed to Christ, where on the cross he bore them away, it just means that God looks at us, he looks at us in Christ as though we had never sinned. But what this third imputation means is that God, in Christ, puts our account more in the black than it ever was in the red. (laughs) As if that's crazy enough. This is how we become. We become, as it says in 2 Corinthians 5.21, the very righteousness of God. Look at the second half of verse 18. Romans 5.18 again. So one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. And then the second half of verse 19. So by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. 
And we know from verse 15 that the one man here is Jesus. And we know from the context and Paul's argument that that one act of righteousness, that one man's, diso- uh, uh, that one man's obedience refers to Jesus' perfect living out his 33 years on earth in obedience to God according to his faith in God. <laughs> Loved ones, this is how one man can make many righteous. The obedience of Christ is the antidote to all the damage done by the disobedience of Adam. Christ and Christ alone is the one and only antidote for people in all places, among all nations, at all times. The damage done by Adam's sin affects every human being because that sin is imputed to us. But the obedience of Jesus is the antidote to the damage done by Adam. Because of his his obedience, his righteousness, his perfect life, Jesus' perfect life is imputed to everyone who believes in him. Christ undoes what Adam did. One commentator writes, Christ is Adam in reverse. So, yes, Christ died for the sins of everyone who turns and trusts in him. That's the heart of the gospel. But there is more. Christ also lived for everyone who turns and trusts in him. And therefore, justification is not only just as if I'd never sinned, as sweet as that truth is, justification is also just as if I had always obeyed. (laughs) Just as if I never sinned just as if I'd always obeyed. Let me just very briefly mention how hugely significant this is for us, how these imputations, three, can function in our lives. First of all, I think, I think it should be maybe clear if you're thinking that they, they truly set us free from legalism. Yeah, I think that the reason that Paul just stretches us here in Romans 5 and our ability to understand these deeper glories of the gospel is because we are so prone. We are, it's such a natural impulse to think that we can and that we must get right with God by our own deeds of righteousness. Aren't we all just driven that way? That's legalism, trying to achieve God's acceptance and approval through our obedience. And that's why legalism is such a ridiculously horrendous enemy of the gospel. I mean, you think like this, working harder to have a consistent prayer life so that God will accept you. Maybe you're working harder to be successful at work so that God will be pleased with you. Maybe you're working harder to battle some lustful craving so that you won't fall out of favor with God. Maybe you're trying harder to honor your father this Father's Day so that God is happy with you. Loved ones, when we do that, we are creating another gospel. We replace the infinitely sufficient righteousness of Christ with our pathetically insufficient righteousness. And that is the last thing we want to do because Christ's obedience now imputed to us, it earned all of God's favor and blessings that flow from his approval and acceptance. Here's the second thing. 
you know, I think once we truly understand and, and believe what it means to be justified, namely, just as if I'd never sinned and just as if I'd always obeyed, then and only then can we make any legitimate headway in the process of being made righteous. <laughs> That's where sanctification starts. Once we understand that Christ's death and Christ's life, his death and life are ours, that we died with him and that we lived with him, only then can we be truly set free from slavery to sinning. That's why Paul's focus on justification in Romans chapters 2, 3, 4, and 5 come before his focus on sanctification, which we'll start looking at next week in Romans chapter 6. Once we know that our standing before God is holy and righteous and perfect, it's only then that we can enter successfully into this process of becoming who we already are, holy, righteous, and above reproach. Here's the last one, real quickly. The truth of these Three imputations contributes to our comfort in life and in death. I know that um, many of you give attention to the New City Catechism, uh, which begins with the same question as the Heidelberg Confession Catechism, which says, our only comfort in life and in death is that we are not our own, but we belong body and soul in life and in death to our faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. The second question in the Heidelberg Catechism says that in order to live and die in this comfort, we must know three things. We need to know how great our sin and misery are. We need to be set, we need to understand how we are set free from all of our sins and misery. And we need to thank God for such great deliverance. Loved ones, I. I think that's how, what this is meant to do. How else may we rightly understand the seriousness of our sin and misery except through the truth of the imputation of Adam's sin to each and every one of us? How else may we rightly understand the glory of our freedom from sin and misery but through the imputation of all of our sins, past, present, and future, to Christ? And more, the imputation of His perfect life to us. Oh, may such precious gospel doctrine produce a humble and peaceful and profoundly grateful people who glory with deep joy in their Redeemer. May this be true of us. Let's pray. Lord, if it would please you today, By your grace and through the work of your spirit and the instrument of your, the truth of the gospel, would you see fit, O oh God, to bring about conversion? Would you bring about new birth? Would you open blind eyes, raise dead hearts, set free souls held captive to sin? And would you see fit, O oh Lord, to bring honor and glory to yourself by intensifying our joy in all that you are for us in Jesus. Come upon us, Holy Spirit, and bring about these precious gifts.
for the glory of God and for our comfort in living and in dying. Amen. Let's stand together.